0: Welcome to Building Worldviews, the Praxis Circle podcast where we talk with experts as you shape your worldview. I'm Lily Lee. These podcasts originate from video interviews you can find on our website, PraxisCircle.com. Become a member by registering at the site and subscribe or follow for our latest episodes. In our final episode of our conversation with economist Ann Bradley, we discuss the Gini index and how it's used to address income inequality. Anne also talks about the role of government and liberty, and offers insight into the reality of world poverty. Let's listen.
1: Now we're going to focus in on we're going to we're going to teach the audience uh, a great little index <laughs> that you use yeah. well, called and, I, and I'm really just looking for uh, um, an explanation. Uh, to the camera of what the Gini index is. Uh, It measures wealth equality, and is it a good or bad indicator? That Mm -hmm. depends, and I think it helps to talk about zero and one. Sure, yeah, it's kind of heady.
2: When we look as economists at income inequality, we try to measure this. It's a very hard thing to get accurate measurements of, but we do the best we can. So we use something called the Gini index. And this really is taking a certain population. So the Gini index, the number you get is gonna depend on your sample size. We could do the Gini index for my neighborhood. We could do it for the whole United States. And we typically are comparing country to country scores. So what we do is we look at tax returns and we say, what is the um, statistical holdings of income over people? And we, the way the Gini index works is it, it ranges from zero to one. So a genie score of one is a score of perfect income inequality. It quite literally means one person has all the income, everybody else has nothing, okay? We can say, I don't wanna live in that world. A genie score of zero is perfect income equality. Everybody has the exact same income. Maybe we all earn $50,000 a year or whatever. The question is, should we be trying to get closer to zero? Zero sounds more fair, right? Everybody has the same. And so when we, as economists, we measure this, again, I said we used tax returns. It's a very kind of complicated method to get to this number. Um, I would say that this score doesn't tell us very much of what we actually wanna know. And just to give you an example, the genie in the US is around 0.45. Okay, so we're almost dead center. Is that good? Is it bad? It's hard to tell, right? Um, what would it look like if the United States had a .3 score, which is closer to a Sweden? Um, what would the what would it look like if the United States had a score of .6? So there's a range over which we have a we have a lot of gray. We don't really know. Uh, and again, I I think what I would go back to here is that the Genie Index doesn't help us understand how people earn their income. Did they earn it by serving their customers? Or did they earn it by engaging in crony type of activities that give them favors? And so that's really a, a much more nuanced level of analysis we have to apply when we're looking at this.
1: Okay. this um, I'm just going to read this question because it's so short. And By the way, we're at the bottom of page three. And uh, yeah, I think the last page usually goes pretty quickly. Um, can equality of result and stature be seen as evil? Can equality of result be seen as evil?
2: Can equality of result. Um, so I think what you're asking there is when we, we want equal outcomes, right? We want, it's going back to, can we manufacture um, a society in which we all have equal outcomes? Let me just give a little meat to that. What would that look like? Well, we all have the same income and we all have a house and we all have a car and we all get four years of education, whatever that equality of outcome is. Uh, If that's what the question is, I think it may not have evil intentions for some who advocate for it. I think it has evil results. And here's why. Go all the way back to Genesis. We're created in the image of God. We're unique. We're different. It's our differences that allow us to flourish. So trying to rectify our differences by making us all equal is destructive to our humanity. It, it, it means that we will be poor, that we will die early, often, and young. So I think it com- a lot of people come to this equality of result, right, income, redistribution, let's give everybody a car. I mean, this is what Hugo Chavez was doing in Venezuela. Everybody gets a car, everybody gets an apartment. It sounds good. It sounds like we're gonna be equal. We're gonna have the same stuff. But the first question is, how do you pay for that? But the second question is, we want people to use their unique sets of gifts and skills and talents to be creative. That's the agency God has given us, be creative. And if people are the same, if we strip them of their differences, they can't do that. If we're all actually equal, there's nothing we can trade for, nothing. And so I think the outcomes of that are very evil. They destroy people.
1: Okay, this is a, a similar type question. Um, you talked about profits being a residual. Um, and if you follow the accounting of of it, it, that's exactly what equity is, for example. It's not just profits. It's The equity is a total residual. Everybody else gets paid except the owner. And then the owner gets what's left. Um, so, uh, but anyway, so We're thinking of democratic capitalism, kind of the macro. Uh, if, If that is a product of where Michael Novak says it is as it comes out of our civilization, what are the goals of democratic capitalism? Does that make sense to you, that question?
2: I don't know that there are specific goals to democratic capitalism. I think there's broad goals to democratic capitalism. What do we mean when we say that? We mean, we don't actually know what's gonna come next, but we, demo- we, we and, and then let's take each word at a time. Democracy rep- means representation. People have agency. I elect my uh, political representative to enforce the rules that I already agreed to. So democracy means that there's political representation, which is a a ward against tyranny and oppression. Capitalism means privately decentralized people, private decentralized people decide how they're gonna make their investments and we have no idea what's gonna come next. So living in a world of freedom means there's a lot of predictability in the rules of the place but it means there's a lot of unpredictability in terms of knowing where the world is gonna go. We don't know what the next invention's gonna be. We don't know what life is gonna look like in 20 years. That's exciting. It's exciting to not know. It's exciting to have people have the right incentives to be coming up with the next big ideas. Um, and so I think that's those are the broad goals of democratic capitalism, but the goals are not specific other than protecting the rule of law, protecting people in their relationship against predation by the state, and protecting markets, allowing part markets to bloom.
1: Okay, I'm gonna, I've, I've got two questions that follow on that. These all have some logic to them. Um, I want to ask you what you think about justice or social justice, sort of that you know, very much accepted. It's kind of like Whig theory of, you know, uh, or ghost in the machine or whatever. Okay. Social justice. What, what do you, how do you think about social justice? That's the next question. And then after that, I'm going to ask you how we cure poverty globally. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how do you think about social justice?
2: Social justice, this is another one of those terms that I think has a lot of different meanings. Um, so I, I think, What I will say is my understanding is what I observe uh, from people who claim to be advocates of social justice. I mean, first let's say I'm not (laughs) anti-justice, but what does justice mean from a biblical perspective? It means getting what you deserve. Uh, I'm not sure we all want justice all the time. I think social justice is a conception that's more broadly trying to articulate what are our social responsibilities for people who are excluded left behind, marginalized, exploited. That said, I think that there's really important things that people in the social justice movement are talking about. There are people alive today who are permanently exploited and are poor as a result of it, and we need to think about what it's gonna take to get them out of that situation. Where I might disagree with some of my social justice contemporaries, if you will, is the means by which we do that. In many cases, um, social justice pioneers and advocates uh, really want redistribution. It's what we talked about before. they think that the best way to care for the poor is to just redistribute wealth? Because the notion there is that Bill Gates, by being rich, is taking away from poor people, okay? So it's a zero-sum game in economics. That's how we would talk about it. It means I only win if I take from you. So whatever I gain is lost from you. That's not the world of free enterprise. In fact, the world of free enterprise is Bill Gates only gets rich if we buy his stuff. And so his stuff needs to be what we want, at the price we can afford to pay, at high levels of quality, right? And so I think the social social justice narrative around the solution for poverty and oppression and exploitation, which are real issues that we need to concern ourselves with as Christians, I think that's where I would disagree with them, is what is the best means? I think the best means are markets. I think that's what liberates us.
1: Okay, well, that's a good lead into, um, you didn't write this chapter, but there were some very good answers to this. Um, And I'd say it's fair to say that Jesus was pretty damn clear about the need to uh, focus on poverty and uh, the underprivileged. How do we cure poverty worldwide?
2: Hmm. How do we cure poverty worldwide? I love this question. Um, I would say first, we are curing it. It's not a how-to in, in the sense that we don't know what, you know, we're starting from zero. Uh, these numbers are, are um, kind of spitballing here, but in 1990, about 45% of the population on the planet lived in abject poverty. And we define that today as living under $1.90 a day. 45%, 1990, not that long ago. Today, it's under 10%, under a billion people while that rapid run escape from poverty has happened, population is going up, not down. So that's phenomenal, right? The population is growing and we're all getting richer. So I think we are escaping poverty, we are curing poverty and what's happening? Well, it's people being included in market trade, right? It's people being able to have agency over their choices and then when they get just a little bit of that agency, It's like a thousand flowers bloom and it's an amazing thing to watch. I mentioned earlier that um, when we see in developing economies, when the poor, the extreme poor, get a little bit of an increase in their income, it goes directly to technology. Because imagine being poor, again, living in a village that's remote and unconnected from the world, and now having a cell phone. What we're seeing is that this is a great um, entrepreneurial opportunity in particular for women Women will save up and buy these cell phones. They'll go to the middle of their village and they'll sell minutes because not everybody can afford the cell phone. And imagine what it's like if you're living in grinding poverty and you have to take your child to the doctor. It's not like the world we live in where my doctor texts me to make sure I'm gonna show up on time for my appointment. No, you have to walk. Could be four miles away and sometimes the doctor's sick. So you walk four miles with your kids in tow who are sick and the doctor's not there to help you. Imagine the time savings that that phone gives you. It's profound. And so I think that technology age that we live in is really um, hastening the pace of this escape from poverty. Um, And so I, I really am just so optimistic about the future. So it's not how do we cure poverty, it's let's keep curing poverty by letting people participate in market trade.
1: Trying to decide if I'm going to add. Just as an economist, how you're you're talking about the little people of the world, right? Not the chief of the village, the the actual villagers, and all that. Um, how important are you know uh, the commanding heights of an economy versus um, the little, the small job, the small business mm-hmm. people, et cetera, et cetera.
2: It's all about the little people all the time. You know, my even if I think of very western wealthy examples. I mean, Bill Gates certainly wasn't poor when he was tinkering around in his parents' garage, but he had a little bit of leftover time and he put his creativity to use and that's what we need to empower ordinary people to do. I like to think of us all as, you know, most of us are ordinary people. So it's about being able to tinker, being able to have entrepreneurship or the chance at entrepreneurship and to me, it's all about the little people. I, I, you and I are the little people, right? I mean, it's about not figuring out who's going to run the steel mills and you know, putting someone in charge of that. It's actually about in the steel industry, what are the little tink, tweaks and adjustments we can make? And that often happens at the ground level from little firms who then grow in maybe to big firms. Uh, but I think it's entrepreneurship is always local. So we need to think about what does it take for people to be empowered, to have just little entrepreneurial opportunities that can grow into bigger ones.
1: Fabulous. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm going to read. We're almost done with your section, and then, we, and then I'm going to take a quick break. We'll finish right on time because we'll just do the fun questions about uh, America and the world. But uh, So I'm going to read this to you, all right? And this is a little bit of a Doug statement, but I want to see what you have to say about it putting one's Christian hat on for a moment, that's me and you, though human beings in the world are fallen, sin, there are no guarantees and nothing like the prosperity gospel makes any sense. Okay, you know what I mean by that, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't this kind of what Christians might hope for in, in this world, on average, from a life or lives lived attempting to follow God's word. Do you know what I mean by that? No,
2: sorry. Are, are, okay. are you saying we get the prosperity gospel? No,
1: I'm oh. saying the prosperity gospel is, I think people that look at it hard don't think that's really the, the right way to look at the, the word. Mm-hmm. Okay? And you may disagree with me on that. But what I'm saying is all, all, all this question is saying, hey, if there's a God and there are certain things in Scripture that say it's better to behave this way than that way or think this way than that way, then if we do that, on average, if there's a good God, wouldn't our lives be a little bit better oh, I see. if we live that way? I mean, yeah. bottle on the head, right? That's all I'm saying. Is
2: I think the way to, to look at this question is to say when... We are obedient to what God has to who He's created us to be and how He wants us to live and act. And those, there's broad principles there, but this is also highly personal, right? How He wants you to live and how He wants me to live. He's going to ask us to do different things. The, the basic principles, of course, are always the same. When we are obedient to Him, we are, we are going to experience less frustration. When we disobey him, when we live against who we're created to be, there's going to be lots of frustration. So it's the fulfillment frustration divide. Now, we can be fulfilled and still have tough stuff that's thrown at us. Um, So it's not the prosperity gospel. It's not that if you do whatever, you know, if you do what you think God is telling you, you're gonna have a mansion and you'll never have any worries again, no. Job promises us, right? We learn from that. Trial, 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 trial. That's the world we're in. Our faith is always going to be tested because the world is is against um, Christianity. And so I think it's never without trial, but it always is fulfilling if you're doing what God is asking you to do. It's a hard thing to do. I think sometimes it's a hard thing to know. What What does he want me to do right now? How do I know that with clarity? It takes a lot of prayer and I think dedication to being Christ-centered so this is a hard thing but I think you can be challenged and 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 under siege and fulfilled so I don't think it's it's this you know um, you're gonna be rich or you're not gonna have any problems or all the stuff is gonna go away like you said isn't it just easier when we obey I think it is easier but that doesn't mean it's always easy
1: okay Uh, observations concerning America in the world are we in a post-Christian world in America, in the West, uh, in your opinion? Um, you know, there's a lot of books being written about yeah. that now. It seems to be sort of the issue of the moment. Mm-hmm. Is Does it exist? What do we do about it post-Christian?
2: Yeah, I don't know if I have a very good answer to this, so I'm going to muse and you can do what you want with it. I'm not sure what we mean when we say a post-Christian world. Do we mean a Christian culture, which I think is what a lot of people are dealing with. I mean, we're certainly not talking about a theocracy formally, um, but you can see when people start to have that debate, you have to ask the question, what does it mean to have a Christian world if we're in a post-Christian world? Um, And I I would go back to Novak here and say, you know, we're not advocating for a theocracy. Uh, what, what, What we're advocating for is for this culture of Christian principles to be free to bloom. Um, you know, Christianity fundamentally is not about coercion. So we never, you know, that's not what we're advocating. Uh, but I think you know, to, to answer this question, you have to say, well, for the people that are worried about being in a post-Christian world, what, what are we losing? What do we have before that we're losing? And I think some of the answer to that is an increasingly secularized culture where Christianity is under attack. Uh, I think there's some of that. The world is always going to attack Christianity. The question is, are the commanding heights doing it? Is the state doing it? Is it hard for Christians to live out their faith in ways that they want to? And I think that's where there's some cause for concern. So if we we, were starting to really think about dedicating some research to this idea of religious freedom, and what does that mean to have religious freedom? Can you take your ideas into the workplace? For example... Let's just use an easy example. Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. That's a religious belief that's being brought right into a a business practice. They're saying, we wanna go to church, We we wanna observe the Sabbath. That, they should, in my opinion, as a Christian and as an economist, by the way, they should be free to make that choice. But it is possible to imagine a world where the state says, well, that's living out your Christianity and oppressing people because you're not giving them the option for a chicken sandwich on Sunday afternoon. So that's where I think some of this conversation has very real um, concerns that we need to, to take into consideration. What is the limit? Um, uh, what limits can the state put on so-called businesses to live out their faith? And I think when you look at it deeply, we're always living out our faith, right? Um, and so I, I, I worry a little bit about this. I, I don't know if that is an okay answer. Sorry.
1: That's a great answer. I'm not sure. on All right, no, no, no. That's a great that. answer. Um, and uh, so let me let me ask you as a mom the follow-on mm. question. When I think about my wife, uh, she would be your age, probably somewhere around 1990. <coughs> okay. This wasn't even cons- this wasn't thought of in any way back then. Okay, and that to me doesn't seem like long ago at all. Um, but, so, your personal approach to the issues raised by the Benedict option, strangers in a strange land, schools that are aggressively either bad or, you know, what, what's your approach as a mother to, to these issues of aggression toward the church, aggression mm-hmm. toward even teaching truth, quite frankly, Gosh. in my opinion. I mean, some of the stuff that... As an historian, I consider myself that. I, I'm like, that's not even history. What what the hell is that, you yeah. know? What, what's your approach as a, as a parent, let's say?
2: Uh, yeah, as a parent, this assault on truth. I, I, I'm gonna answer it two ways if it's okay, as a parent, but also as a professor. Uh, is It's just astounding, the thought control, I, I think, and the desire to limit a dialogue I mean, if we're gonna get to truth, we're gonna have to dialogue. This is exactly, just to keep going back to Novak, this is what he was talking about, a culture in which we can ask real questions and you're not shot down for asking the question and this is the world we live in today. And as a mom, this is terrifying. I send my children to private school, we're very blessed that we can do that, at Christian private school. I have many friends who are homeschooling their children as a way to get around this and um, what makes me sad is that it's very hard to send your kid to private school. It's very hard to homeschool because it's hard to compete with free. So all these resources at the local level are dedicated to these public schools. And so private schools have a hard time competing. And think about parents who are making the sacrificial choice to homeschool. They're giving up, in, in many cases, one parent's not working because that's your full-time job. So it's a very expensive thing to do. Um, but I don't want my children to be exposed to um, someone else's perception of truth in a dogmatic way that they are not permitted to question. And I think, by the way, this is possible in the private schools too, right? So you're never away from it. I think what we have to do with our children is teach them to seek truth that's grounded in scripture. Uh, As a professor, I'll just say really quickly, it's terrifying what's going on in college classrooms. I have a part of my syllabus now that explicitly is addressed to academic freedom. And in that paragraph, I talk about how we are going to question our beliefs to their core. And that's what it means to seek truth. And that's what it means to be a learner. And if you're offended because you hear an idea, um, but you're not willing to investigate whether that idea is true or not, you're never gonna learn. So I think there's a real reason to be concerned about the culture.
1: The real problem, one of the, the you're talking about is I, I have extreme secularization, but I'm going to rephrase that and call it postmodernism in practice by mean people. Okay. <laughs> um, and they have a lot of power now. How did we get here? You may not be old enough to answer that I question. Know. I don't know. Any thoughts?
2: Um, how did we get here? I'm at a loss. I I don't know how we got here. I think the problem with this, everybody has a truth business, is that now you can't say something is incorrect. Let's just take something benign, which I don't actually think is benign at all, but property rights. Most people who live in a country like the United States agree that property rights are really sacred and important. But then when you start to push on the edges of that, It's not so clear that people think that. Do I have a right to tell you that, I mean, let's just think of something silly. Do I have a right to tell you that you can't put a swing set up in your backyard or that you should or should not have a fence or that you can or cannot have a pool or what can you do on your property? I mean, these are questions of property rights. And I'm not sure when we shifted to everybody gets to tell you that because that seems to be the culture that we're in now, which is, my neighbors can tell me what to do with my property and then we can have injunctions through HOA boards and that percolates all the way up to the top. I'm not sure what the cultural shift is that got us there. Maybe one, one aspect of it is it's very, we live in a digital age that's very transparent so it's easy for me to see what other people are doing. In um, 50 years ago, maybe that was kind of more difficult for me to know everything about my, the corporations I deal with and the, the neighbors I deal with. Um, I'm not sure. I don't have a lot to say about that because I don't, I don't know, but I am worried about it.
1: Should individuals, institutions, and governments in general run on a balanced budget? Why, why not?
2: I would say to answer the question of whether governments should balance their budgets, we should, you know, there's no macroeconomics without microeconomics, so let's go to the microeconomic principles here. Your family doesn't do itself any good services or any good when it runs always in debt. Uh, and so, you know, there's some debt that's good debt. We, a lot of us have mortgages on our homes, you know, that's responsible debt, but you don't wanna take a mortgage that you can't afford either. So I think um, the principles of um, prudence, prudent stewardship that apply to our family lives have to apply to our businesses and our governments. Uh, and when we lose sight of that, and here's the problem with the government that's different than the family. There's a limit to how much credit Citibank's gonna give me, right? And if I stop paying my bills and I'm always running, you know, over the limit and all these kind of stuff, they're gonna stop doing business with me because I cost them a lot of money. And maybe I don't pay my bills. And the same is true for the US government. If we are always going to be in debt, that debt has to be paid for. So the problem that I have with this from a moral perspective is that currently we are financing everything we do by putting a financial burden on people who are not even born yet. So they have no say. We are loading up that burden on people without asking them. That is theft, in my opinion. It's a very dangerous thing, and it's a very vicious cycle, and Republicans and Democrats are equally guilty of this. So we have, In terms of the federal budget, we have a lot of problems, and this is why. We can all talk about balancing the budget, and that's all fine and good. I don't think that's enough. I think we need to have a fundamental question about what spending can we stop engaging in? Because we spend more than we can afford as, as a government. And if we don't stop that, the bottom will fall out. Uh, and that's gonna have international implications, right? The soundness of the dollar is one of the best things we have going for us. It makes the dollar a very attractive currency. But if we start spiraling out of control in our debt, that's gonna affect the value of the dollar and everything else. So I think we have to tread with caution here, and I think we need to get back to principles, which is we spend too much. Both parties spend too much. So it's a fundamental reform in the institution of government. This is a hard thing to come by. Nobody wants to give up their spending, right? So it's hard.
1: What do you think uh, America's role in the world ought to be? As we as, we as Americans sit here and looking out at what we do, what's our role?
2: My answer to that question is probably a lot different than other people's question. I think our role is to trade with people. I think our role is to um, to open our borders to goods and services from anywhere that it's effective to get them because that makes not only us better off, but it makes everybody else better off. To me, this is so clearly a biblical principle. We're called to care for the widow, the orphan, the poor, right? The forgotten. How do we help the people in China that still live in poverty? How do we help the people that live in Ghana? How do we help the people that live in Venezuela? We find ways to trade with them. And I think that this is the best because people look globally, people look to the United States government for what to do. So if we can be a leader in opening up our policies of trade and exchange, other people will follow. I I have to say the news here has generally been good over the last 40 years. Lots of trade barriers have been reduced. I do not think, maybe I can answer the question also by saying what I don't think, I do not think the US should take kind of an imperialistic, kind of we need to kind of intervene uh, everywhere and make the world safe for democracy in the Wilsonian sense of that. I think we've tried to do that before. I think it's very expensive I think it doesn't work. I think if we want other places to have democratic freedoms, they need to have free trade freedoms first. Milton Friedman and F.A. Hayek wrote a lot about this, the relationship between economic freedom and political freedom. And the idea is that economic freedom is necessary for us to get political freedom and political reform. So what can the U.S. do? Trade. Promote economic freedom. I think I, it's, it's that easy. It's also that hard.
1: All right. Two, I, I lied. Two more questions. What, 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 are you, what are your thoughts on immigration? I mean, if we mm. should trade, why don't we just let everybody in and we'll all be happy?
2: Yes, also um, a a topic that I like to discuss, but I think um, I have an unpopular opinion, which is that I think when you're talking about trade policy over goods and services, it's very easy for people to understand that we shouldn't grow our own bananas, right? Mexico grows bananas, they have a better climate. We don't grow any kiwi fruit. We get those from New Zealand and other places. It's very easy for people to accept that, okay, we should give New Zealanders money They'll give us the Kiwi, we're both better off. But I think a free trade conversation also needs to incorporate an immigration conversation because what is immigration? It's the trade of labor. So if we're so easily willing to accept Kiwi, why aren't we also willing to accept labor? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't vet that somehow, uh, but I think we do ourselves a disservice when we make it very hard for people to come here who want to come here. And if you look at the economic data over this, what we see is that immigrants, especially in a country like the United States, perform jobs that are very expensive to get American counterparts to perform. So I really dislike this kind of trope that says um, they're stealing our jobs. I don't like that phrase at all for a couple of reasons. One, you're you don't have a right to a job, um, so nobody's really stealing it from you. <laughs> I mean, that implies that you know some El Salvadorian woman comes over with her family and a gun and holds it to somebody's head and says, fire the American, hire me. It doesn't work that way, right? Why are jobs shifted? It's because of the, the labor. Um, and so I think immigration is good both for the people who are coming, but the people who live there. Uh, and we used to be much more open about our immigration policies. Uh, as a country, and I think we thrived because of it, and I think we would do ourselves some good to go back to some of that.
1: Are you optimistic or pessimistic
2: about the United States? In the long run, or for today, however I want to answer that. Here's what I would say. The United States is a great place to live. I mean, I live here. I could live a lot of other places, I suppose. So it's a great place. Uh, lots of economic freedom. But we're slipping. Uh, if you look at the, the data that we collect on this, in 2000, the United States was ranked number two in the world for economic freedom. Today, we're about 16 or 17, depending on the index. So we've dropped about a rank every year. And so the question is, what's what's driving that? Where are we going? So I don't think the trend looks that great. Um, Here's what I'm worried about for the United States, excessive levels of regulation. It's becoming harder and harder to be an entrepreneur. We're regulating business operations so much that it costs business owners a great deal to just open and maintain compliance. This disproportionately affects the poor, which I'm worried about. Uh, I'm worried about something that we call occupational licensing. It's getting very hard to open a business without having a license. Uh, An example of this is Hair braiding. The Institute for Justice took up the cause of hair braiders because this is disproportionately affecting African American women who are, op- you know, hair braiding in the basement of their homes and able to have a little business. And the salons have come in and said you need to have 2,500 hours of cosmetology school, which basically excludes them from the market. We have to stop this. We talk about income inequality. This is the worst type of income inequality because it's the rich trying to protect their privileged position, and they're using the state to do it. So I'm really worried about regulations in the United States because if we keep going at our clip and we don't stop spending, there will be a wall we hit where we, you know, there's economic decline, lots of unemployment, and what's gonna happen then? I mean, how are we gonna get ourselves out of it? Like I said before, I don't think there's ever a reason to be hopeless. Uh, America has historically been the best place in the world to be for a lot of reasons. Good government, good institutions, good economy. But we have to fight to keep that. And I think we could get our edge back if we just reform ourselves along some of those margins.
1: Congratulations.
2: Done. You're all done. Yay!
1: Fabulous. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you.
0: Economist Anne Bradley is vice president of academic affairs at the Fund for American Studies in Washington. She's also a professor of economics at the Institute for World Politics and Grove City College. I'm Lily Lee. Thanks for joining us for our conversation with Anne Bradley. Subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to podcasts and visit us at praxiscircle.com for building worldviews.